Okay, so thank you everybody for, for joining us tonight. Um, my name is Vicky Hawkins. I'm the Executive Director of Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders here in the UK, and I'm going to be your chair for this evening. Um, welcome to this panel discussion on Afghanistan, the transition. 2014 is obviously a significant year for Afghanistan with the withdrawal of international forces by the end of the year. Obviously a very symbolic moment this week with the lowering of the, of the Union Jack and the handing over of Camp Bastion to, to, to Afghan forces. 2014 is also a poignant year for MSF. It marks 10 years since five of our colleagues were killed in a brutal attack in, in Western Afghanistan, and we left the country for five years, re-engaging in 2009 in the face of a deteriorating humanitarian and security situation. In 2014, concerned for waning international attention for Afghanistan, we've also released a report and put together a photo exhibition, which is on display tonight over in the atrium, and we very much hope that you'll join us there afterwards for a drinks reception. There'll be um, drinks of, of all sorts fitting for the topic of the evening. So please stay and um, join us afterwards to, to have a look at those photos together and, and continue the discussion. Just some quick house, housekeeping issues before we start. Um, tonight is on the public record. If you want to tweet, please do. The hashtag for this evening is hash MSF. Um, please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. As I said, the event is on the record. It's being recorded and it will be available as a podcast um, after the event. And once we've heard from our three panelists this evening, there will, of course, be the chance for you to ask them questions. Um, so without further ado, let me hand over to our panelists but, um, with a quick introduction. So just to confuse things, we're going to have, I'm going to introduce the last speaker first. So in the middle, we have Emma Graham Harrison, who spent the last four years in Kabul as the Guardian's Afghanistan and Pakistan editor and the Afghanistan bureau chief for Reuters news agency. She has recently returned to London as the international affairs correspondent at The Observer. She's going to be followed by Renzo Freak, who is responsible for MSF's humanitarian operations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Renzo has worked with MSF for 12 years, coordinating emergency responses in numerous contexts, including Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Haiti, and Ivory Coast. And we're going to start with Dr. Stuart Gordon, who is assistant professor at the interestingly named course Managing Humanitarianism at the LSE's Development Studies Institute. Stuart co-authored the UK government's Helmand Roadmap, the UK's diplomatic and military strategy for Afghanistan. Stuart. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to do two things. Um, one is I'm going to carry on the kind of photographic theme around which this um, evening is organized by exploring some of the imagery um, uh, or the construction of imagery and visions of Afghanistan and what that means in terms of policy. And then secondly, uh, in my remaining nine minutes and 36 seconds, I'm going to explore some of the challenges of future policy um, for Afghanistan. So um, without further ado... 
There's a huge amount of talk uh, about defending our legacy in Afghanistan. Nearly 500 British soldiers died. Um, a huge amount of uh, money and political capital was spent on um, the British intervention alongside uh, other NATO partners in Afghanistan. But all this talk about defending our legacy, I think, obscures the, the real danger um, that Afghanistan will, um, will change in our minds, that the attention will wane. Um, and I want to look at quickly some of the dynamics that make that more likely uh, and some of the consequences potentially um, of it. There's lots of ways of considering Afghanistan as a state, as a, uh, as a set of histories, as a people. But another way of, of labeling it is as a social imaginary, the idea um, that it, there are a set of beliefs and assumptions about what Afghanistan is. Um, and um, these assumptions frame our understanding of the reality of what Afghanistan is. So Afghanistan isn't this kind of objective uh, uh, state. It's a, it's a set of beliefs and understandings uh, about the way in which Afghanistan functions, about uh, what normality constitutes, uh, about how politics is played out in Afghanistan. But these images and narratives which constitute this social imaginary um, are ones that will shape our future choices about the way in which we engage with Afghanistan. And if you think through, even if you wander through the photographic exhibition and, and you, you think about the kind of images and narratives um, which shape our understanding um, of Afghanistan, you note that there, there is a, a constant set of images of warfare, uh, a preparation for the return of warfare, um, uh, uh, pre preparations um, for the future uh, uh, warfare, uh, or images capturing the consequences of warfare. There's a sense of images which capture uh, a form of toxic um, religious extremism, a sense of opposition to all um, elements of modernity. Um, you often see images and narratives of suffering, flies in the eyes, narratives of corruption, cronyism, uh, the profusion of uh, the narcotics industry. You've seen in recent reporting as well the language of balance sheets, what's happened to NATO's investment in Afghanistan. And you hear the language uh, almost of the banking sector, failed investments, defeat, loss, profligacy, um, corruption. But I think what this does is it creates uh, a real sense of what instruments of power have been used and how successful they've been. The instruments and technologies of modernity Development, democracy, military power have all seemed to have failed. The language um, really captures the idea that a great superpower, the greatest military alliance perhaps the world has ever seen, has singularly failed to defeat um, a uh, relatively poorly equipped uh, insurgency. The Afghan economy has seen more money than the Marshall Plan in Europe, some 62 um, billion sterling. So the narratives are ones of archetypal state failure. They're a very pessimistic vision of what Afghanistan is and what it represents. They're not necessarily wrong, the images or the discourses, but the consequences of excessively focusing on those narratives and discourses are potentially binding, blinding, and problematic. What they potentially lead to is a sense of what Mark Bradbury described first as the normalization of crisis, um, which itself breeds a sense that there is a degree of futility in engaging with Afghanistan with the instruments that we have. 
Now, Mark Bradbury first used the, the, the label of the normalization of crisis in conjunction with Somalia, where he was looking at indicators of morbidity um, uh, and sort of normal humanitarian indicators in crisis situations. And his idea was that um, we begin to accept the perpetuity of um, appalling indicators, suffering and mortality rates that are chronically low, low compared to other crises, but we accept them as normal. And my concern is that we, we focus so much on the aesthetics of suffering and of failure in Afghanistan that we've discredited instruments which can and have worked. And the consequence of this will be international disengagement. In other words, we see all the conditions that are right for the selection of neglected status for Afghanistan. And what we've missed is the fact that Afghanistan contains large numbers of resilient communities that are not necessarily stuck um, in the kind of barbarian sense of state failure that Afghan communities do suffer. Those images aren't wrong, but there are significant um, cases of where Afghan customary um, uh, uh, non-governmental um, non uh, society has been able to provide forms of governance um, despite the chaos uh, that rages around them. We've often seen Afghanistan in terms of the failure of the, uh, uh, the state-building process that uh, NATO states have unleashed in the last 13 years or so. But Afghanistan has always been a troublesome state. Center-periphery relations have historically been difficult. Um, it's uh, often been cast in the language of um, uh, the language of insolence, the unwillingness of the periphery uh, to be governed from the center. Undoubtedly, development money has been spent uh, and has been spent badly and wasteful, um, often by Western militaries. But there have been piecemeal successes in education and in health and um, in some forms of local governance. But what's worrying is that we're creating this set of images, a narrative of bare life in Afghanistan, of warfare, of displacement, of underdevelopment, the idea that this bare life with little potential, living in situations of chaos, can simply be managed or left on the margins of civilized society. So the problem for me is the social imaginary that surrounds Afghanistan is one of negativity, which only tells part of the story. It discredits the instruments that we have for engagement, and it will lead to neglect. And the consequences of neglect are significant both for Afghans and for the surrounding community. Moving quickly on to the challenges for the future, I think there are five quick ones that I would pick up. The first is the construction of a national unity government. Can um, uh, uh, Abdullah and Ashraf Ghani create an elite bargain that isn't toxic for stability and future development in Afghanistan? Can they contain the factional infighting? Can they contain the power uh, of the warlords? We've seen um, an unprecedented challenge of a peaceful handover of political power at the same time as a military handover as NATO withdraws. And although it was peaceful in the end, the huge um, vacuum, the period of negotiation uh, as that government was formed, um, was immensely damaging. The, government, the uh, country's stale economy stagnated further as capital flowed outwards yet again. Foreign investment was deterred, uh, trade faltered, and government rev revenues, such as they were, dwindled still further. 
So the first challenge is, are we going to be able to see a national unity government that's able to sustain an elite bargain that itself isn't toxic for the future of Afghanistan? The second is unemployment. Um, with a, a government that is uh, essentially bankrupt, how are we going to maintain employment levels to such a degree that these, the unemployed individuals don't become uh, fodder for uh, the rising, uh, once again, of the warlords? The third issue is security. And it's not simply regime security, but it's also human security. In the first six months of this year, we saw a 17% increase in the numbers of civilians over the same, uh, killed uh, by the security forces in the same, uh, compared to the same period of the year before. The UN has spotted more fighting in urban and populated areas. And whilst there is a story of desertion and uh, the dwindling of the Afghan national security forces, there's also another tale of NATO's commitment to $5.1 billion per year in order to sustain the Afghan national security forces. And that $5.1 billion is going to be absolutely essential to maintain any hope of maintaining the ANSF. The fourth key point is reconciliation with the Taliban. And that's going to be particularly problematic. Both Abdullah and Ghani have been described as U.S. puppets by the Taliban, uh, and the Taliban seems singularly um, unwilling to engage uh, in political trade. The fifth point um, is the very obvious one about balancing the books of a bankrupt nation. And here, uh, the importance of November's London conference really comes to mind. Unless the, uh, we've already seen the U.S. Congress halve uh, the aid to Afghanistan for next year, uh, European donors with sluggish economies, all in the shadow of austerity, are going to want to see guarantees of women's rights that uh, Ghani will find it difficult to give. Um, corruption um, curbing uh, uh, measures are going to be absolutely vital. Narcotics production reduction are going to be key conditionalities. And all of these things are going to be extremely difficult for um, uh, Ghani and Abdullah to, uh, to deliver. But I point out that the spectre of ISIS and the potential for ISIS uh, to draw links with the Taliban, um, the historical spectre of the Afghan civil war, means that come um, the London conference in November, Ghani really should and probably will get some of the basic uh, financial capital that he'll need to sustain the Afghan state. But the point is, what about the future? Without sustaining um, the Afghan state, despite all of its uh, shortcomings, if we allow the, um, the narrative of Afghan failure to dominate, we will make the reality of that uh, social construction of what Afghanistan is into a reality. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, yes. <clears throat> Hey, Renzo, I think we've been handed a direct challenge there from Stuart. Do we create a self-perpetuating prophecy by focusing on the challenges and the failures? I'm going to try to give another angle on the, on the reality, indeed, uh, of Afghanistan today. So good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Post-withdrawal Afghanistan is not post-conflict Afghanistan. As the international military intervention draws to a close, Hardly a week passes without casualties or severe injuries from IEDs, gunshots, or landmines. After decades of providing emergency medical care in Afghanistan, MSF left the country in 2004. This departure can be explained by the murder of five of our colleagues in back this province, 
but also by the reduced space MSF had as an, as an independent humanitarian organization to operate amidst the state's building strategies that the major donors were already implementing as early as 2003. We returned in 2009 because the situation was deteriorating and the needs were increasing, and they continue to rise. Today, MSF is working in four provincial capitals. Kabul and Lashkargar, we support the Ministry of Public Health in a district and in a provincial hospital. In Kunduz in the north, we run a specialized trauma center. And in Rost in the east, our teams are running a maternity hospital. Both of these two are 100% MSF run. To give you an idea of the level of our, of our activities, more than 3,000 women deliver in our hospitals every month, and there are about 1,000 surgeries a month also. However, we know that there are urgent needs outside the walls of our hospitals, in places where the war is still very present. Last year, MSF interviewed more than 800 patients to better understand the experiences in accessing healthcare. Our report, which I think should be available in the room, reveals a harsh reality, go back to the reality, that is very different from the more optimistic rhetoric you may hear about Afghanistan. We found that the majority of people across those four different provinces I mentioned often cannot reach critical medical assistance due to the insecurity, distance, or cost. A quarter of people had either experienced violence themselves or had a family member or friend who had experienced violence in the last year. Over 80% of the violence reported was directly related to the conflict. Even more concerning for us, one in five people had a family member or close friend who had died as a result of the lack of access to healthcare, and this within the last 12 months. Beyond the statistics, where the horrific stories we heard, an entire family blown up by landmine as they traveled home from hospital with a new baby, of villages caught between rival armed groups, of people forced to hold nine long death watches over sick or wounded relatives as fighting rage outside in the hope of reaching medical care safely the next day. Patients trying to reach a doctor or medical facility told us about how they must risk government and opposition checkpoints, landmines, bandits and crossfire, and the majority are too afraid to travel at night when all these obstacles intensify. For those who do manage to reach health facilities, actual care is often too expensive, even though health care is supposed to be free in Afghanistan. In Khost, in the east of the country and in the capital, Kabul, roughly half the, the people surveyed by MSF borrowed money or sold what they could to pay for medicines or doctor's fees during a recent illness. When we first arrived in Boost Hospital in Elmand in 2009, we found a hospital on paper only. There were very few patients and a basement full of expensive medical equipment that lay unused. Five years later, we hospitalized um, almost 2,000 patients a month and see more than 5,000 people in the emergency room. <coughs> we see that if you provide free, quality care, people will come. On the other hand, we face a huge frustration working only in cities. People face many obstacles to reach us and we have little to no access to people living in the districts and in the villages. 
This is true for most of, of, of most of, for most of international organizations, and not only for health. There is very little visibility on what is happening in the countryside, outside of the main cities. It's really a black hole of information. And we have to wonder if basic medical services even exist in some areas. Actually, we, we cannot see. Although our research was conducted in the second half of last year, and the report published in February this year, we have absolutely no reason to believe the situation has improved since then. In fact, this summer, the fighting season, our medical teams in both Helmand and Kunduz were under increased pressure to respond to the needs that are directly related to the escalation of the conflicts. In Helmand, when the war surgery hospital run by emergency NGO was overwhelmed by the number of patients in July, 68 wounded patients were treated by MSF in Boost Hospital. As the fighting intensified, we received more complex and severely wounded patients with multiple trauma due to explosive. During the peak of the clashes, MSF surgeons were, perform were performing up to five surgeries a day and admitting six to 10 wounded patients to the emergency room. In Kunduz, in Kunduz sorry, which has been considered one of the more stable provinces over the last years, the security situation has deteriorated dramatically this fighting season. In our trauma center, the number of patients coming in due to the violent trauma increased significantly. Almost half of the patients admitted in the intensive care unit in July and August were due to violent trauma. Clearly, optimistic discussions about state building and reconstruction overlook the harsh reality of Afghans, still trapped in a volatile country. Discussions underway about Afghanistan's future must recognize and address unmet humanitarian needs and medical needs. A lot of the money that has poured into Afghanistan over the last 13 years has been used to develop quick impact projects aimed at winning support of the Afghan population and advancing military objectives. For example, short-term health activities were initiated by international forces in areas close to the front line. At the same time as providing medical care, they were gathering information for military purposes as part of the counterinsurgency strategies. Meanwhile, areas of no strategic value did not benefit from the same investment and consistently appear at the bottom of the priority list despite prevalent needs. As a conclusion, when humanitarian aid is politically driven, it drifts dangerously far from meeting real needs on the ground. While rebuilding states, reinforcing capacities, and creating systems is important work, it cannot replace the principled approach to humanitarian aid in a country that's far from stable. The war may be over for international troops, but it's not for, for the Afghans. Thank you. Thanks, Renzo. Over to Emma. Hi. So, um, as my colleagues on the panel have uh, addressed the humanitarian system and uh, humanitarian situation and looked a little bit towards the future, um, I thought I might uh, spend my 10 minutes looking uh, back a little bit about sort of how we, we got to where we are today. Um, as a country, we, we don't seem very good at learning from our mistakes in Afghanistan. Um, most people here have probably heard of Sangin. It's been an iconic uh, battlefield of this war. Um, we were also fighting and losing battles in Sangin over a century ago. Um, that's not to say that the, the latest venture was, was uh, doomed to end uh, as it has today. Um, 
I think it's a result of the strategy that our governments and generals have have um, have chosen, and particularly as we're sort of staring down another intervention, maybe it's worth looking at, at sort of the decisions they made. Um, I, I do want to start by saying, with reference to, to Stuart's comments about negativity, that there have been impressive gains in Afghanistan. Um, there are kids in school for all the padded attendance registers and empty classrooms that you read about. There are millions of children who are getting some kind of education when uh, uh, under the Taliban it was just a few hundred thousand. Um, Afghanistan has one of the most free uh, media environments in the region, which is is worth quite a lot. Um, there's been more than 10 years added to life expectancy, according to the WHO, although it's still low. Um, maternal mortality has declined, thanks to projects by MSF. Um, it was one of the worst countries, or it still is one of the worst countries in the world to have a child, but it's a little bit less dangerous than it was. There's also less tangible but equally important gains, such as the, the small but, but real improvements in the uh, legal uh, all the systems to support women that, for instance, last week uh, allowed the successful prosecution of a mullah for, for raping a 10-year-old girl, which is something that you probably wouldn't have seen. She actually stood up in court and testified against her attacker. Um, it was a far from perfect situation. Her family haven't apparently taken her back, but, but still, a 20-year sentence is, is um, justice that, for, for that girl. Um, so... I spent a lot of time as a journalist investigating reports of progress that were sort of false pictures that were being painted by Western and Afghan officials who wanted to sort of claim credit for improvements. Um, I think calling people out on on those lies or half-truths doesn't mean that we have to ignore these real improvements, a lot of which came at great personal sacrifice from both foreigners and, and of course, Afghans, people like... I recently wrote a story about Malalai Kakar, a Kandahar policewoman who was gunned down by the Taliban for helping women escape domestic abuse. But, you know, even while we look at these gains and recognise them and make sure that the, the, the discourse about Afghanistan isn't all negative, um, I think we still can and should ask how, after the loss of thousands of, of military and civilian lives, um, Afghanistan is still such a dangerous and unstable country. As Stuart said, in the first six months of this year, nearly 5,000 civilians were killed or injured. The army isn't holding up well either. Over the last two years, nearly 3,000 Afghan soldiers have been killed um, and over 14,000 injured. Nearly one-third of the force leave every year. If you think about trying to fight the Taliban with a coherent military, uh, that's a very, very heavy turnover. And, and we can also ask about, about the money, um, Again, as Stuart mentioned, we spend over a billion dollars adjusted for inflation. That's more than the Marshall Plan that the U.S. provided to try and um, rebuild all of post-war Europe. Um, And yet we're leaving behind a country where over half of people are illiterate, half of children are stunted by malnutrition, a majority of people live on less than $2 a day. Um, So I think it's, you know, reasonable... uh, for us to look at the gains and say they were too expensive and they're too fragile. Um, so some thoughts on, on where sort of things went wrong, um, given that troops were welcomed into Afghanistan when they first arrived, um, given that there was great enthusiasm from, from people going there and, and from Afghans who also flooded back to their country to, to try and rebuild it um, over the last 10 decades. This is not by any means a comprehensive um, List. It's just some thoughts I had from, from my time there. Um, so, you know, from the beginning, I think things went a bit wrong when, when Western governments, Western troops 
uh, sought revenge for topple- after they toppled the Taliban and demonised them, even though they had a constituency. They had people who supported them in Afghanistan. Um, there were several, or many members of the Taliban who tried to surrender, who were bombed or killed um, or tortured back onto the battlefield. It's documented particularly well by, in a book called No Good Men Among the Living by Anand Gopal. Um, his argument is essentially that we, we helped, through our military strategy, kind of re, re, revive the Taliban. Um, we made very little effort to understand um, the places that we were trying to um, do either development work or to fight. Um, another book that's come out recently, An Intimate War About Helmand, written by a former member of the military, um, who went to the British Library to look up records of... Um, the British presence in Helmand during the Second Anglo-Afghan War more than 100 uh, years ago. He found they, they have very detailed um, information about disputes over land and water, um, the population of the area, quite a lot of which he felt was still relevant today. Um, he asked the librarian when they'd last been taken out, and, um, and she told him uh, not since 1992. Um, so no one had even bothered to look at those records of, of, of a place where we were sending um, you know, thousands of... of young men and women to fight um, we also made very little effort to learn local languages um, I, when I was embedded with the military I'd often find people in southern Afghanistan where the dominant language is Pashtun telling me yes I'm a trained engagement officer um, I speak the local language I say oh you speak Pashtun no no I speak Dari which is essentially as many of you may know the language of northern Afghanistan um, I mean it's like sending someone to to the UK speaking French it's, it's a completely different language so um, instead we put our trust in, in technology um, thinking that, that technological superiority would mean victory um, despite lots of evidence suggesting otherwise we gave little thought to who we were empowering we often set up um, or helped back up officials who abused their power um, and turned people against us as well as the Afghan government um, there was a, a great enthusiasm for an American military doctrine I don't know if any of you have heard of called COIN um, which was a sort of counterinsurgency doctrine um, people, people became so a lot of military uh, officers became so enthused by the idea that they had a handbook for fighting the insurgency that they gave very little thought to the fact that it, it's pretty hard even to fight your own insurgency and, and perhaps impossible to fight someone else's when I first arrived in Afghanistan I um, I called round, I was sort of curious because everybody was talking about COIN, I called round a lot of experts in insurgency and military strategy and I said to them, so, you know, this counterinsurgency, what are the models that the military's trying, the successful counterinsurgency models that the military's trying to copy here? And the answers I got were Northern Ireland, um, which doesn't seem very comparable to Afghanistan, um, the British in, in Malaya in the late 1940s after the Second World War, and Iraq. That was the other example of a successful counterinsurgency operation. Um, these, these weren't people affiliated with the military. They were just um, academics. So I never really got anybody to provide me an example of a successful counterinsurgency fought by a, a, an army from outside the country or that, that they were operating in, uh, a foreign army. Uh, we also forgot about the Afghan army. Um, until 2009, the West apparently thought that, that, that we would defeat the Taliban alone. Um, there were sort of half-hearted attempts to build it up, but, but, but the training program didn't really begin in earnest until 2009, which is 
I mean, quite extraordinary, really, if you look back and think about it. You know, it implies an intention to stay indefinitely in Afghanistan that's, that's pretty mind-boggling. And, and we also ignore Pakistan um, largely and the, the safe havens that the Taliban found there, uh, sort of operating almost as if Afghanistan was some sort of isolated bubble, um, <clears throat> not, not a place where insurgents could, could come and go. Um, then on, on, on the sort of humanitarian or development front, um, and I'm talking here more about sort of government aid projects than, than the sort of small organisations um, that doing grassroots work like MSF, which generally I found very impressive. They had years of experience in Afghanistan and they were uh, they tended to be brave and committed but not over-ambitious about, about what they could do. Um, by contrast, I think Western governments tended to think that they could buy Afghanistan's way out of war and poverty um, and, and through money at at trying to resolve, um, you know, a very sad situation, but, but not one that can be solved by money. Um, you know, just one of many examples is a $431 million agricultural project that paid people in southern Afghanistan to do things that they'd done for free, like pruning their fruit trees, flooded districts with handouts of cash that temporarily buoyed up the local economy and then suddenly left everybody back where they had been. Um, you know, a lot of people went in with an incredible arrogance about, it seemed to me, about their ability to change another society, which if you, you look at our own society, it's, it's, it's very difficult even to change your own country. So, you know, the idea that you could go in and understand another country and, and effect change there rather than working with Afghans. Um, uh, we, we would send people in, in sort of who, for security reasons, would be quite isolated from the people they were trying to help, living behind um, behind sort of... Blast, blast walls, travelling in bulletproof cars, um, and, and you know, like some of the politicians and, and military people who didn't always, um, who could have made more effort to understand the, the, the country that they were operating in. So, for instance, uh, you had $34 million spent on introducing soybeans to a country that, that certainly needs more protein, but has absolutely no record of eating soya, didn't like it in any of the forms in which it was produced. Um, and, and there was no sort of efforts to really test out whether people would eat it, you know. I mean, people have a history of not eating things that are good for them. <laughs> um, and another, you know, and the, there were also smaller projects that were that were sort of vulnerable to that as well. Um, I heard about a bathhouse that had been built by a very small charity that decided they wanted to help two villages rather than just one, so they built the bathhouse between the two of them, um, but people had to carry wood to heat the water for the bathhouse, so nobody bothered because it was sort of too far for either village. Um, our governments tended to sideline the Afghan government in their sort of bid for short-term gain, sort of, again, what, what Renzo was talking about. Um, you know, there was such a hurry to set up more schools, to set up more clinics. Instead of building up government capacity to build and run these things, there was a decision to just fund them but without really thinking about how they would operate um, after the West left, sort of coming back again to that, that, that's, that sense that lasted for a long time, that, that, that the presence was um, indefinite. Um, that didn't just go for schools and clinics. It also went for sort of some... Uh, development projects, for instance, Kandahar doesn't have enough power. The US military used its discretionary development funds to set up a diesel-fired power plant, which provided Kandahar with much-needed electricity that helped provide jobs, fuel factories. The problem is 
diesel fueled electricity is extremely expensive. There's absolutely no way the Afghan government can afford it. And money to pay for the diesel is running out. No one's really resolved what's going to happen when all the factories employing people suddenly don't have any power. Um, you know, back, back to the sort of question of unemployment. And, um, and then, you know, also the, the problem of opium production. There never seemed to be a really concerted effort to look for an alternative livelihood solution. There were just a lot of ad hoc attempts, sometimes at eradication, sometimes at sort of trying to get people to grow other things. But in, in many cases, because they weren't very coordinated, they ended up sort of expanding opium production. It, it it's now sort of happens in desert areas of Helmand that weren't under cultivation before. Um, so I guess overall, the main lesson I've sort of taken away from Afghanistan, my time there, is, is that, you know, you can't buy peace. You can't really build it without your enemy, even if you don't like them. Um, and you can't rebuild someone else's own country for them. You, you can support them and you should support them, but you shouldn't go in thinking you can uh, remake someone else's country. Okay, thanks, Emma. So I think we've had three quite contrasting and interesting uh, presentations there. I'd like, before we open up to the audience, I'd like actually just to hand back to Stuart, who I saw frantically scribbling, to see if you have anything that you would like to say in direct response to either of the other two speakers. And then I'm going to ask Renzo to directly respond to your challenge <laughs> on a, a self-perpetuating prophecy. Right, thank you. Um, okay, no, I, I really enjoyed both, both of those presentations. Um, the, I, th I think the problem that I'm worried about is how you construct an image of um, what is happening in a particular country, and those images are, are not wrong. But the trouble is they become um, a set of bars almost for the future. They corral and they, they shape what you do. And I, I, I agreed with absolutely everything that Emma said. I thought it was that, you know, wonderfully clear and concise um, uh, analysis. It's all absolutely, absolutely correct. But the, but the problem is that um, what it creates is a, a real sense of... Um, uh, of a lack of faith in any of the instruments that we have. And whilst on the one hand there is a problem with hubris, which, um, which you quite rightly pointed out, that we had a hubristic sense of what we could achieve in Afghanistan, which meant that we tried to do far more than was possible, desirable or deliverable. But the result, um, I think, is that we swing the other way, that we, we, um, we almost suggest that all forms of development will not work that we lose confidence in any of the developmental interventions or any of the governance interventions. And much of the problem, um, I think, with development in Afghanistan is it was done in such a daft way. Um, it was done um, often using militaries. Um, it was often done without the checks and balances of conventional development work. Um, and even the Kandahar um, uh, example, I think, is a really interesting example. You're absolutely right. That was a completely bonkers idea. But it, it was set within another bonkers idea, which itself might have worked. And that was the, uh, the use of the hydroelectric power from the north of um, Helmand, which would then uh, provide a cheap, perpetual source of power um, for, um, for Kandahar in particular. So it was a stopgap measure. But the incompetent way in which the... 
um, uh, the Helmand River Valley um, hydroelectric plan was 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 reconstructed um, meant that the stopgap plan became the permanent plan and, and was therefore a failure. And I think that's the kind of, uh, of problem that you're absolutely right to point out. There's also another difficulty as well that um, you have to hold power brokers to account for the, for the failures of their political strategy, the military strategy, and the development strategy. And one of the really big problems that I think confronted the Americans and the British was their unwillingness to listen to the criticisms that were raised. And criticism was often seen as disloyal um, uh, because you're undermining public support for the right war. Uh, People are dying. You must uncritically support. So there was that danger that, on the one hand, you needed a critical... um, Uh, almost loyal opposition to point out the stupidity, the shortcomings, the failings. Um, But on the other, you had um, a hubristic set of bureaucracies that were almost incapable of learning, that had too many incentives to carry on doing what they were doing. And you saw this even within government as well. So, for example, um, DFID was was intriguing in many ways. Um, DFID um, saw development as something... uh, they. They believed that Karzai, on the one hand, could create a political settlement that would bind the Pashtun South, and that Diffid's job was to reinforce the central government ministries and create the structures of state that would then deliver um, public services, democracy, tax raising, uh, control of the borders, and so forth, which was a very, very sensible plan. But they came under massive pressure from militaries, uh, particularly the British military, but also from uh, the American military, to do hearts and minds type projects in Helmand, which had a long track of track record of failure Um, and militaries grasped more and more of the development pie particularly CERT projects from the Americans which were almost uncontrolled cash avalanches which created um, ridiculous projects the the idea of in Sangin the example you you gave the idea of um, uh, of one military commander that you could somehow um, uh, provide a washing machine and this was the key to peace and stability in Sangin because you'd win the hearts and minds of the people in Sangin through this almost invisible washing machine that had no plumbing, no water, no electricity and put 15 ladies who did the washing out of work but somehow uh, this was money as a weapon system um, so I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Emma's point that, um, that, that you have to hold these people to account. You absolutely do. But the problem is the unintended consequences of the account holding now. What does it mean? We lose faith in development. We lose faith in elements of humanitarian intervention. We lose the political will to engage in a political strategy that is essential to help Afghanistan at this stage. And that's the concern I have. I don't disagree. I'm I'm concerned from Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Renzo. Yes, but the thing is that MSF is not a state-building organization. MSF is not engaging with political agendas. MSF is a humanitarian medical organization that responds to needs that we experience in the fields. Um, and quite often we like to go against prevailing winds. And the thing is that probably when we initially had the idea of making the, realizing this survey, probably the tone and the, the rhetoric and the, the, the discourse used by NATO and by the states mm. was quite different than how it changed in the following months. It took us uh, five to six months to uh, perform this survey. And so from the initial idea in the spring 2013, then after the realization of the uh, interviews during all the 
summer and um, autumn 2013, and then the, the real publication of, of the survey, we felt the tone change within NATO, within the states, uh, maybe not that much within the Afghan government. But, <laughs> um, but, but the thing is that there are two, two points I would like to make. First is that Afghanistan is really a country where MSF has experienced since, and I mentioned initially in the speech, in 2003, 2004, the first big um, willingness from, from Western countries, from big donors, to invest into a system, into a post-conflict environment, which was just two, three years after 9-11, which was obviously too early and unrealistic. And then, and then there's been, it was really a, a theater, I, I, I can say, where the, the mix between humanitarian and military has been at its uh, maximum, where the multi-headed NGOs have been uh, promoted as uh, at their best, where uh, political agendas were confused all the time with real uh, humanitarian assessment of the needs. Um, so that, that's one point. The second point I would like to do is that uh, the, the access to the real Afghanistan, the one I don't know, well, I, actually I know it a bit from before 2003, 2004, but, but those last years I've not been able myself to access to the districts. I've been traveling by plane between Kabul, Kunduz, Lashkarga, those projects that we have. I've not been myself able to go to the districts. And, and the interest of the studies was to try to bring a point of view from the Afghan person, from an Afghan basic person, just an, an Afghan woman, an Afghan man, who would come either from, from the city or from the district and tell us what they experienced. So whether it's the, the reality of Afghanistan, I don't know. It's the reality yeah. of the 800 people we interviewed. Um, and I really would like to challenge because we didn't say that sometimes that be transformed and change a bit in the media that MSF is opposing against some obvious improvements indeed. I think mostly in education and human rights maybe. But, but in health, using statistics that now 50% of the population has access to a health center within a one-hour one walk, I'm sorry, it might be right for an empty clinic, but an existing clinic with staff and drugs that is um, uh, for free would be a, uh, even best, uh, I really doubt. And I come back on studies that were um, commissioned by John Hopkins University in 2010 with the, the most often used uh, medical indicators, where actually you can read in the annex, page three or four, that there's a few districts that basically were taken out of the study because not accessible. And in every study mm. that come back, there was the... Um, South Asian study on uh, democracy and a hope of the future. Again, in the annex, annex, you can find that some of the most striking areas of the prov some provinces have been taken out. But then we use the best part of Afghanistan to promote a certain message that we wanted to challenge. Maybe there. Okay. <laughs> Quick final word to Emma, and then we open um, up for questions. Just to say, I absolutely agree with Stuart that, you know, obviously as a journalist, you always get feedback on your articles, people emailing you or just leaving comments. And, and I think there is a worrying tendency to, for people to sort of go to one of two extremes. Either you have to believe it all, or the whole engagement with Afghanistan was pointless. Nothing's changed. Nothing's, <coughs> nothing's got even slightly better. That was why I sort of wanted to start out by pointing out that, you know, although they might be questionable to a degree, there have, there have been improvements. Um, and, you know, I did try 
in my work to sort of show another side of Afghanistan, not a fake propaganda side, but but a more sort of uh, human, positive side. And actually, those were often the stories that were most popular. Probably the most popular story I wrote from Afghanistan was about an ice cream factory whose owner sold ice cream uh, all over the country. As he said, uh, even the Taliban like ice cream. And there was just... (laughs) there, uh, There was something about it, this sort of glimpse into the fact that, you know, for all the, the violence and the horror and, and all that reality of that, which is, you know, so many people endure every day, there are also many people who manage to, to sort of create a life and get on with it. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think it's important just to show that so that you don't end up with this narrative of sort of victimisation and, and negativity and hopelessness. Um, and just on, on the sort of aid development side, again, I agree. I, I think the problem has been sort of in many cases, realism of scale that, that a lot of these, you know, government projects, a lot of them are USAID or military projects, sort of they were focused not on what people actually could achieve, but on what they wanted to achieve and there's somehow an assumption that enthusiasm and money would get you to your final result, which I think was terribly terribly damaging and really dangerous Okay Thank you. So now we're going to open it up to you Um, We've got some roving mics, so please put up your hand and somebody with a microphone will will find their way to you. Could you let us know your name and your affiliation before you ask your question and if there is somebody in particular that you want to direct your question to? So let's start on this side of the room. Hi, my name is Joshua. I'm a postgraduate at SOAS up the road. And I'm just curious, maybe this is more appropriate for Stuart or Emma, your impressions of the U.S. military program, the Human Terrain System, and whether or not it was able to achieve any of the goals it set out. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that everyone just looks at me. I guess it would be me then. Um, Okay, the Human Terrain System, I think, is a really interesting um, innovation. It's um, using sociologists, but particularly anthropologists, to give you a sense of the cultural, social, and other dynamics that don't um, drive an armoured vehicle around a battlefield. and I think it's almost a metaphor for how little um, the American military really understood any of the civilian world that they confronted, that they had to create an isolated team of quasi-academic specialists who would act as interlocutors for them. I think it was a metaphor for their own difficulty in relating to any form of civilian. Um, uh, let alone an Afghan civilian. Um, I think the impact that these specialist cultural advisors had was often so limited within the American system and to some extent within the British system as well um, that it's quite striking that you create these structures in recognition of a problem and yet you don't feed in the input into the decision makers that are trying to solve the problem. Um, I think there are sort of other interesting ideas as well. You don't have to create a human terrain uh, um, team in order to understand the dynamics of Afghanistan. What's interesting is DFID, for example, doesn't do um, a country study, a strategic conflict assessment, until I think about uh, 2008, 2009. Um, And yet DFID is involved in Afghanistan from... Um, long before 2001. So all of these bureaucracies struggle to understand the political economy um, and the sociology of the, uh, the conflict that they're dealing with. 
um, and the instruments are technocratic responses. Um, but it does raise a question as to whether or not bureaucracies would ever be able to engage in the kind of social engineering that they set out to do. DFID gets close to it, um, but the idea that these militaries would be able to engage in these forms of social engineering that counterinsurgency suggests, I think, is hubris on a tremendous scale. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't do intervention. You do intervention for much more scaled-back reasons. Um, you, you would be able to do an intervention using development means um, if the processes and procedures followed many of the processes and procedures that development organizations uh, engage with. But the idea that you can construct a society out of the ashes of 30, 30 years of, uh, of conflict and you could create what was anticipated, um, I think, is, is the scale of the problem. It's the hubristic uh, approach that the West collectively engaged in Afghanistan with. Okay. Thanks, Stuart. Let's take another question. We've got one here at the front. Thank you very much for a great presentation. My name is Justina, and I'm a graduate student at LSE. Afghans in the UK comprise uh, the largest number of asylum applicants on detained fast track, meaning that they're being detained and deported within months of claiming asylum. Would you agree with the Home Office in regards of Afghanistan being a safe country for migrants to be returned to? Is that directed at someone in particular, or who wants to take that? Emma? <laughs> um. <laughs> Just say no. And it's <laughs> I mean, On your way I, to I actually, well, I mean, um, I actually wrote an article relatively recently about Afghan asylum seekers, and my, my you know, the sadness I found there was, was that they were. Or, you know that I was particularly focused on, and and um, I don't know what really can be done about it. But the majority of Afghan asylum seekers here are, are men, um, about ninety percent of them, and I don't think that ninety percent of the people who are at risk in Afghanistan are men. Um, overall, in fact, women make up less than than half of asylum seekers, I believe, but it's particularly noticeable with Afghanistan. And, and you know, often uh, the, the people I spoke to about that, often the problem is it's much harder for women to get, get out of Afghanistan in the first place. They don't have the resources to pay for the journeys. Their, their families are not willing to let them because of the extreme danger. Um, and they don't have the sort of social status or, or educational or professional standard to, um, to, to get jobs that would allow them to take flights and then cl claim asylum when they're here. Um, I, I wrote in particular about a woman who'd been an MP and had been uh, beaten up by her husband is currently in hiding in a third country, um, living in terrible poverty, quite sick and fear of her life. Uh, I, I certainly wish that she had been given asylum in the UK. Pertinent topic at the moment. So there's one at the back. No, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's Helen. I am a humanitarian advisor at DFID. Um, although I should caveat that and say I don't work on Afghanistan. I haven't worked on Afghanistan. but um, And I've also arrived late, so forgive me. But I, I'd really like to, to hear some constructive recommendations that I can take back to the team. Um, we're obviously... <laughs> We've obviously made mistakes, and, and there's criticisms that I've, that I've overheard as I came in, but we are in a new period, and um, there's, a, there's windows of opportunity. What would, what would you have DFID 
differently at this stage. And, and, and just as an aside, just as we mentioned the Afghanistans in the UK, I'd be interested to know if any Afghans or representatives of the Afghan government were invited to be on the panel. Good question. Um, can I ask each of you to come up with your top recommendation for DFID? Looking forward? Okay. As a lifelong supporter of DFID, <laughs> I hope that came across. Um, okay. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do in many ways. Um, I think... The, the, the gist of my presentation was, was that we need to be very, very cautious, although I've um, thrown caution to the wind in my last uh, interventions, um, but we need to be extremely cautious in the way in which we, we characterise um, Afghanistan um, and that there is a real risk that we lose faith in the instruments um, by which we influence other, other societies and that there, there were twin dangers. There was the hubris of expecting too much from them and then there was um, the danger of retreating in the result, uh, as a consequence of perceived failures in Afghanistan that we do too little. Um, so mine was a very general, uh, general set of observations. Um, I think... In the case of um, Afghanistan, DFID, DFID faces a, a really significant problem in the sense that it's, it's under pressure to demonstrate um, that its budget has a security impact, that, it's, um, that somehow DFID isn't simply a development NGO in, in, ministry, um, in ministry clothing that there is considerable pressure from the right of British politics to, to show the, the kind of strategic value of what DFID does in broader terms than simply development. And my concern has always been that that leads to um, uh, DFID being encouraged to do the kind of projects that its instincts tell it will not work. So it became much more heavily involved in large-ticket infrastructure programs in, uh, in Helmand and the south of Af Afghanistan, that it, it came under pressure to show more visibly deliverable um, projects. Whereas when, when DFID is at its best, it's, it's looking for ways of influencing domestic and organic processes. It's not looking for announceables and deliverables for ministers. It has conducted a political economy analysis. It's conducted a, uh, a conflict assessment. Um, it is beginning to understand the limits and the strengths of some of its traditional um, engagements. And it begins programming with a long-term perspective. So it resists the kind of announceables and deliverables that I think will, will be, it will be under pressure to deliver in Afghanistan, um, to demonstrate that we have protected our, our legacy, uh, that we are providing, that we are, uh, providing um, things which are visible and can demonstrate that we've done something and we continue to do something. So the kind of deliverable, announceable, tangible risks uh, are, are what I would uh, advise against. And also, um, perhaps as the situation deteriorates, looking at maintaining a, a balance between short-term um, tactical humanitarian responses and longer-term strategic developmental responses um, and making sure that that's driven by um, a strategic plan rather than simply political convenience. Um, but I'd be interested to see what you would suggest um, would be something you would take back um, and pretend we came up with it. <laughs> If you stick to that at the end. Emma? Um, 
Well, uh, personally, I mean, I'd, I'd like to... It's a very uh, difficult and intangible thing to, to support often, um, but all the women's rights activists I know in Afghanistan, um, most of whom are, you know, are very brave women who, who come under all kinds of threats, um, really say that international support is, is critical to them being able to sort of continue their campaigns, keep their shelters open. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much of a component of DFID's work it is, and I don't, you know, think necessarily it's sort of running poster campaigns about women's rights or whatever changes things. I, I personally think, you know, working with and supporting Afghan activists is probably, you know, one of the most productive things you can do and putting pressure on the government. But I certainly, personally, would like to see DFID, you know, keep a commitment to women's rights at the heart of, of what it's doing in Afghanistan in whatever form it takes. I mean, I'm a journalist, not a policy person, so um, that that would be my sort of... Okay, Renzo. And, and I'll, I'll give my input more on the uh, humanitarian fundings and on the... Uh, I'll just make two points. First, I think DFID can can and should continue to, to play a role in promoting a principled approach uh, in humanitarian uh, action. That's my first one. And, and the second one is to not decrease the funding in the future. So we just had a meeting with DFID earlier this afternoon, and I was pleased to hear that the uh, 2014 to 2018 envelope has doubled from uh, 40 million pounds to 80 million pounds. We were just impressed by the number, but just when we transformed it into euros, we realized that the yearly amount is just under the MSA budget, yearly, so which is around almost 27 to 28 million euros a year. So I thought maybe what MSF can do on one side per year, maybe DFID could do more per year, the humanitarian action. Okay, and just to respond to your, to your last question, so MSF, of course, has... Uh, many ongoing discussions in Afghanistan with the Afghan government there. They're very familiar with our report and we raise these kind of issues with them on an ongoing basis. And tonight was really focused on the international community, hence the, hence the makeup of the panel. But, oh, and I'm going to quickly hand... Aisha, the, the organiser of the event is also going to quickly feedback on that. <laughs> Yeah, just in terms of um, the representation of, you know, the Afghan voice, so to speak, on the panel, and obviously it's a, a poor substitute, but, you know, the idea of the MSF report was really to bring the, um, you know, some sort of message in, you know, it's a very weak way and it's not a robust study of the entire kind of Afghan kind of voice, but, but the aim of the report, which is what this event is really based on and the exhibition is really about trying to bring some of the messages that our teams did go around and speak to people and it's about bringing that to the table. I think in terms of having kind of representative, representative from a kind of Afghan government perspective at the time of organising this, we, you know, we didn't know what, who the government would be. So... <laughs> 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 So that hopefully is, you know, it's a you know, poor substitute, but that was really the intention. Okay, thank you. We've got a question waiting back there in the, in the middle, even though the microphone's just... <laughs> I'm Stephen Cart. I'm the head of the Afghanistan campaign at Global Witness. Uh, and uh, apologies for arriving rather late. We, we work on um, corruption in Afghanistan. And, you know, this is clearly one of the... <laughs> big intractable problems or the big failures of the past um, 13 years. But I'd just like to ask the panel, first of all, whether they think that um, 
you know, this really is intractable, how ingrained it is, or is it simply a matter that the available policy measures that are there haven't been tried, and possibly you know, their prognosis for how likely they think changing this under this government. And if, if I can just have a, a, a short second question, which is, do you think any of the lessons of Afghanistan about the political nature of this battle have been understood and will be applied to the wider, um, you know, the, the wider sort of conflict with extremist Islam, which is a very simplif- simplified way of presenting it, but which is, I think, how our politicians see it. Have they learned any of the lessons in Afghanistan about the political nature of that, that conflict? Okay, so how about Emma takes the first part of that question and Stuart the second? Um, so obviously, yes, corruption is probably, I didn't speak about, enough about that. I think it's a, a, a massive issue. Uh, Ghani, the new president, has made a big show of, of, of promising to crack down on corruption. He's ordered the arrest of, of the two uh, principal architects of uh, the Kabul Bank scandal, nearly billion dollars stolen from a bank. Um, the, the, the guys have been living under house arrest, sort of in relative impunity, wandering around Kabul, kind of enjoying their dinners and stuff. Uh, he's also apparently been turning up at hospitals and sort of, if no one's on duty, firing the managers which is great and really impressive and not something that had been seen before. However, none of those people are very politically powerful. Um, the, the Kabul bank guys had, had links to the previous regime, to Karzai's family, but, um, but not that I'm aware of, to Ghani's family. So what I would like to see as a real commitment to, to tackling corruption would be uh, the firing or the trial of, of someone like a minister or a, a provincial governor. You know, when, when I see the Afghan government going after someone senior inside it for corruption, then to me it will be a serious crackdown. Until then, I'm, I'm going to remain sceptical um, that, that it's more than window dressing to meet uh, donor concerns about corruption. And Which also, another point, I guess, to differed, um, there's been very little, the amount, the money, that the funding that's been provided to Afghanistan, there's been very little contingency on anything being done including managing it very well. Um, so, I mean, it might be worth looking at, at that, I guess. I mean, seriously, I think the only two instances I can remember of money being withheld was over the Kabul Bank scandal. The IMF withheld some money temporarily for the trust fund that paid police and the army. And the EU at one point withheld $12.5 million, I think, of funding for a justice programme. And those are the uh, over a failure to complete some goal that had been agreed with the Afghan government. Those are the only times I can remember fund, promised funding being withheld. Okay. Um, in terms of the second question, uh, um, it, it's intriguing because Western military, political, uh, diplomatic, and uh, development bureaucracies have focused uh, increasingly on producing what they describe as a comprehensive approach. Uh, the idea that horizontal coordination between these three branches of government, and probably justice and policing as well, um, will deliver a politically informed, um, militarily relevant development-supported strategy that um, is inherently successful. And I think the problem is that we've seen um, the structures for cross-government working being defined as success in itself rather than necessarily being capable of producing the kind of strategies that these government departments can get behind um, and will then deliver some sort of success. 
So comprehensive working and integrated missions are actually quite good. Often three government departments coming together and getting agreement for what they were planning to do individually. Um, It's getting slightly better at producing strategies which are synergistic in a better way. Uh, and I think the UK is probably ahead of most um, uh, most European governments, at least, in, in getting the machinery right and the hope that the kind of politics um, and strategy will come out of that machinery. But it's still a long way away. And uh, I think this, there continues to be a danger that we've got bureaucracies which have differing degrees of ability to deliver things. Um, to deliver a political strategy, to deliver a development strategy that is able to engineer the social engineering that supports that political strategy, that a, a military that will do something different that is necessary for that plan to achieve, uh, to achieve its results rather than doing what militaries do when they deploy into those situations and they just operate like they normally do. So I think we've got a huge long way to go and I think it raises question marks as to whether or not the scale of um, problem that we're confronting is ever going to be amenable to the scale uh, to the bureaucracies that we have. The scale of ambition is still far too high. But we do have instruments that work very well on a more modest scale. Development can achieve um, impre- uh, huge improvements in health and education. Um, humanitarianism can save life. Um, so we try to use these instruments and say that they can deliver these sort of life, social, society-changing um, transformations in the short term. No, they can't. But they can contribute in the longer term. Uh, improvements in human capital uh, and life expectancy will make a, a, a big change over the longer time. But they won't do it in six to eight months in Helmand. Uh, they won't do it in Syria. They won't do it in Libya. Um, they are not those sort of instantaneous um, tools that can achieve the kind of political effects that you, uh, you claim to want. Okay, thanks. In the middle here. Oh, uh, wait for the microphone. It's just coming, just on your right-hand side. And if there are other questions, put your hands up so I can... Robin Hanna, I read um, in Jonathan Steele's book of Ernest Garn, which you may probably know about, um, that the Aga Khan has uh, got a cultural uh, organisation which is trying to, um, co- uh, to preserve the very beautiful garden which Baibar, the first Mughal emperor, had before he moved to India and established the Mughal Empire. At that time, I think, uh, the Mughal Empire, India and Afghanistan were one country. And um, I wonder whether you're aware of what the Aga Khan's cultural center is doing and, if you, and, and all members of the, if you have any comments on this, if, you, if you're aware of this. The preservation of the beautiful gardens in Kabul, uh, which, from, which used to be owned by the first Maghribiber, whose autobiography was a new vent of Islam, the look of the tiger, which we might be aware of. Okay. Um, yes, I, I, it's a lovely garden. I used to go there, as did many, many people. It's, um, it's one of the few places where you'd see a lot of families, uh, women hanging out, having picnics. It was very busy, particularly on Fridays. Um, it's been beautifully planted. There's amazing gardeners. The tomb's been wonderfully restored. There's a lovely mosque that was built by one of Baba's descendants. Very small, beautiful white marble mosque. It's a, one of the loveliest places in Kabul. A very successful project. Oh, it has a swimming pool as well, although sadly only for boys. <laughs> I wish there was one for girls too. 
Maybe Diffie can build on. Sorry. <laughs> okay, down here at the front right. Hi, Lee Stokes from Business Confidential. Um, uh, there's a report in uh, Rude Pravo, the uh, Czech newspaper, recently that said that the uh, Soviets had made a much better effort with far more limited resources uh, in the areas that you've been discussing and that Stuart in particular has been praising best for health, education, uh, women's rights, etc., before they were kicked out. And I'm just wondering, what's your impression? I mean, did the, did the Soviets actually achieve anything uh, in these areas, and are there any lessons that perhaps, uh, you know, we should learn now, given that they, used, they had far fewer resources at their disposal? Stuart? Oh, dear. <laughs> so I'm picking um, on you. <laughs> it's really interesting because um, I, I, I remember having a, a chat with a former provincial governor in Helmand, um, and he made exactly the same point, that the, the Soviets... Um, had done a wonderful job because they they did development properly. They built roads and they built um, um, bridges and they they built um, sort of big ticket infrastructure items. Um, and I came across a number of Afghans that said the same sort of thing. But I also came across a, a, a equally well, probably large number of Afghans that said, you know, w- what really matters is access to healthcare. That's absolutely vital. Um, And what we want ultimately are jobs rather than simply these big symbolic um, structures. And some of them would even talk about some some of the the, the sort of activities that the Americans got involved in historically as well. Um, Big ticket infrastructure, Hellman uh, irrigation schemes and so forth, saying, you know, they they had a place. so I, th- I think the picture, picture is actually mixed, that there's no, no one, um, one simple solution in any of these cases. Um, what is it that's going to be able to allow a community to improve its living standards, its position, um, uh, uh, to allow its economy to connect with other areas? So I think it's very much context-dependent, and I'd beware the silver bullet solutions. Um, and also, when you look at some of the big-ticket items as well, particularly with large-scale infra- infrastructure projects, the opportunities for graft, uh, corruption, nepotism... Um, were enormous. Um, there were lots and lots of cases of um, big-ticket infrastructure items paying money, in effect, for protection money, that money being split with the Taliban. So you've got the strange, strange sort of political concoction of uh, we're building roads in order to undermine the Taliban, but we're actually paying the Taliban protection money in the short term. Um, you know, somebody needs to kind of think through the theory of change in that logic, um, uh, that, that logic bomb. Um, so the point I would make, um, I think, is a really simple one, that development doesn't rely on silver bullets. Infrastructure is not the simple solution, but it probably has its place in some contexts. And secondly, beware infrastructure, um, particularly in... Uh, corrupt environments or environments which have traditionally used these forms of external resources as part of patronage networks, um, you can encourage corruption and you can undermine the very objective you're trying to achieve. So typically academic, I'm afraid, um, sitting on the fence. There's a very interesting book called Aiding Afghanistan which compares, I don't know if you've heard of it, it compares, it sort of looks at, at you know, problems that both uh, American and other Western countries and Soviet efforts to, to 
sort of develop Afghanistan uh, ran into. It's, it's quite interesting, sort of. I won't try and summarise it. Okay, thanks. We had a question here in the middle. Hi, um, I'm, my name is Jacob. I'm a medical student at Imperial. Um, so the topic of transition, um, I was wondering if MSF has a, an idea about how the next, I know you've been there for over 30 years, how the next five years, three years, 30 years might be, will you still be there? Is this a transition where um, maybe with the military leaving there'll be a change, a, a lack of media interest um, and it'll be hard to get the same amount of medical aid to continue? Uh, will, will sustainable development of the, the hospitals being handed over Will that be realistic? Okay. The, the, the transition... Is this the title? Or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the transition word was, was used and, and used and reused and reabused um, because it's a political transition, it's the military transition, it's the economic transition. Um, I don't think there is any transition for the population. Um, they're just more... Um, continuation of situation that I would say continues to deteriorate and, and in which there is less and less visibility. Um, when you ask about the future, I, I believe the, the humanitarian needs are, are increasing. Um, the, the areas that are more difficult to access for humanitarian organizations are increasing or are uh, further, uh, yes, gaining space. Um, so in terms of future, I would say yes, MSF is determined to stay in Afghanistan as long as it's possible, uh, as long as our security is, 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 uh, is ensured in a, in a way, as long as we're not targeted uh, because we don't move with uh, armed guards, with uh, protected cars. I mean, we just wear, as we say often, just a simple T-shirt. Um, Otherwise, I mean, in terms of how the, the the humanitarian landscape might evolve, there might be less multi-headed NGOs. There might be less blurring line, blurred lines between humanitarian action and and um, and military action. There is there is no more PRTs, to my knowledge, uh, or they are all closing. Um, I mean, having. I've seen this since, since 2003, when you see uh, mobile clinics carried out by white cars, but with having gurkhas in it. I mean, it's a bit disturbing for a, a young humanitarian worker. I was at that time. I was also moving in a white car, but we were just having the T-shirt inside. So there might be, there might be less humanitarian aid in the future, but, but it might be more clear for the population. Um, so whether it's better or not, I don't know. But... Um, and, and I'm afraid the security situation is going to deteriorate. We're trying proactively to, as I describe as a big frustration, to, to have more activities where the people live in the districts and not asking the people to come to us, but it's very challenging. I mean, just going 10 or 15 kilometers out of town, you need to negotiate with two, five, or sometimes 10 commanders. So it's just sometimes impossible. Um, but we don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> okay, we've probably just got time for a couple more. So now hands are going up. So let's 
try and let's try and keep them quite short and pithy and the answers. So let's start at the front and then we'll just do these three at the back. Um, hi, my name is Ikram. I work for a humanitarian organisation but in personal capacity. It's actually a question just following on from what you just said about workers in white cars. Um, Afghanistan has been a, a, a conflict where um, a lot of NGOs, humanitarian organisations at work, uh, more deeply and collaboratively with what could be called occupying military forces than, than most previous wars. Not MSF, but, but certain other ones have. What has been the impact on your own operations and, and in the loss of trust of, of the perception of impartiality um, and neutrality and so on? Uh, you want to take that one? And then, Maybe or do you want to yeah. do the three together? Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's hear the three questions. So if the lady in the middle there. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm a journalism student at Brunel University. Um, so I just want to, one, um, want to know what the panellists think of the fact that Afghanistan may be transi- transitioning into more violence um, as the Taliban are regaining more territories, such as the um, Gizab district. Okay, nice, short, and easy question. Thank you. And quickly, for the last one at the back, somebody had their hands up there, and then we'll answer the three. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a graduate of LSE, and um, I work in education and education development. I've spent the last year in Afghanistan. My question is also about the future. Um, Stuart, Stuart said that we need to redefine our narrative of Afghanistan um, and we shouldn't set limits to it um, saying that it's failed completely. We need to put some faith into the instruments of development. But that projects aren't going to work if they're six to eight month projects at Hellman, for example. And Emma gave a multitude of examples of such projects that have failed. So I'm wondering as Afghanistan starts to transition, not for a transition not for the population, of course, but the economic transitions and as the military starts to scale down, what are the chances of actually being able to implement successful long-term projects in the region? Okay, thank you. All right, so let's start with Renzo on the question around perceptions of independence and neutrality. I think the... The, 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 mo- the most direct impact or consequence of these blurred lines between the different actors has been a, a first a reduced humanitarian space for, for NGOs. It's been a reduced security for the NGOs. Uh, and, and this led for, for actors like us to, for, for a need to to invest in, 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 in more, I mean, more acceptance. I mean, basically, in more spending time uh, with elders, with patients, with uh, communities broadly, to continue to repeat who we are, what we do. Uh, yes, we are, we, we are foreign organization. There are a bunch of foreign people, but we, most, we mostly work with local staff, so they should not be afraid of, of us. Uh, and, and, and I think, I, I sincerely believe also that we had to invest quite a lot uh, in, in to improve or increase security measures just because related to movements, related to um, the dynamics we have in the cities, uh, just people don't know anymore who is who. So uh, a white car, a T-shirt, a green car, uh, 
uh, an arm or not, uh, uh, PRT delivering uh, medical activities. Uh, I mean, that's that's a complete blurred image that I think the population as now is completely lost in a way. And, and, and I hope in the future that, but it's going to take time because it's, it's years and years that it's been like that. That's that what comes to my mind. Okay, thanks. Emma, on transitioning to the Taliban. Um, there's, there's, been, there's certainly been lots of um, reporting of, of Taliban taking, um, taking districts, particularly in, in northern Afghanistan, or perhaps not actually taking control of towns, but essentially controlling the surrounding countryside. Um, I think lots of people foresaw that, um, you know, when you removed... Uh, things like sort of, you know, spy planes, uh, air power, things like that. Obviously, it would be easier for them to, to um, you know, exert kind of military strength. Um, I mean, what do I think about it? I, I make, you know, personally, makes me sad, the prospect of, you know, more fighting in Afghanistan. Um, I, I lived there for four years. So I've, I've left behind lots of friends, people I admire, you know, even just people I interviewed, but, you know... I'm, still remember or I'm still in touch with and I assume most people here would be pretty sad at the prospect of more uh, war um, because I mean that, that you know the Afghan army is still fighting it's not um, it's not a transfer from one authority to another it's, it's fighting Okay thanks and finally Stuart on how can we implement long t- longer term programming Yeah um well, it's, it's almost putting the cart before the horse. Um, it depends what happens as to how you implement long-term programming, and, and that's the great challenge at the moment. Um, I did some work with um, some government that was working in um, Afghanistan, and it was really interesting because they, um, they asked me to generate a series of um, scenarios as to what would be the likely impact of um, transition. Um, and there were three scenarios, um, very straightforward. Um, there always has to be three. Two is just not enough, really. But three, um, one was um, more of the same, but just a little bit worse. Uh, on the far side was a return to civil war. Um, and the middle one was exactly what we're seeing now, which is um, Taliban increasingly encroaching onto some of the big urban centres uh, across the south, um, the government losing control of large swathes of rural area, but a mixture of local plus warlord groups resisting the Taliban's complete control and a series of local accommodations. Um, So those were the three options. But what was interesting is the way in which um, the bureaucracy that I was working with said it's unacceptable to put any options which talk about scenarios which are significantly worse than we're dealing with at the moment. So the, the politics of being able to predict the future is a difficult thing, even within a bureaucracy that has an incentive to know what will happen and then to program to try and remedy some of the, uh, some of the worst effects. Um, so that's a, a neat way of getting out of answering that really tough uh, question. Um, But I think um, Renzo's point that acceptance in situations of uh, of conflict was was the kind of great innovation that ICRC brought and then uh, MSF uh, uh, adopted as well. If the situation does transition into one of outright warfare, acceptance of short-term humanitarian work will be about all that you can do. 
um, which kind of rules out some of the longer-term developmental or educational projects in those situations. So the trick is um, one of gaining, obse- uh, uh, gaining obse- accept, being accepted um, uh, and then being able to predict when the situation is such that um, longer-term developmental work is no longer in a, 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 an environment that uh, it makes sense. You, know, you can't have children on, um, going to school in those environments. Um, when the schools become a direct target, you can't run a school. Or when the teacher's a direct target, as they were in Sangin, um, and the school itself then education doesn't make sense at that point. Just to add one point, I know I knew I was missing an important one. Do, do you want to, to know how difficult it became for MSF to organize a vaccination campaign in uh, those areas since a fake vaccination campaign was organized in Nabotabat? We don't, we're not able to do vaccination campaigns anymore in those areas. I mean, except very, very, very limited ones, or if there is an obvious outbreak of measles, for example. But otherwise... As long as there are polio vaccinators coming near us, we just step out because it's too dangerous. That's just another example. <laughs> okay. So thank you to all our speakers. It's been several years since I've been to Afghanistan myself, but I've been reminded myself. I've been reminded tonight of what, an, what incredible positives and negatives exist within the country simultaneously. A few times its stunning landscape has come to my mind and its incredible hardy people and the fact that somehow they they continue to thrive despite the violence that sort of rages all around them. I think we've been reminded tonight by Stuart that there have been some successes much of which is down to the resilience and the hardiness of those Afghan people, and we mustn't lose sight of, sight of those and condemn Afghanistan to an inevitable future of conflict. But we've also been reminded by Renzo of quite how bad the bad is and what little we know, in fact, of what is happening in vast swathes of the country. And Emma gave us some very personal accounts of how Afghans have experienced the past 13 years of international engagement, what the money spent and the programs implemented means for them. And it is for them, of course, that we must remain committed, whether that is as aid workers, journalists, academics or diplomats, and not accept that the future of Afghanistan is one of inevitable violence. Hopefully tonight and the photos that we hope that you will come and see after the debate will be a small step towards achieving that. If you're interested to hear more about the work of MSF in general, there's a sheet in the atrium that we'd be very happy if you would sign up for. And uh, we hope to see you over there to continue the discussion. A big thanks to our speakers And also thank you to the LSE for hosting us tonight and thank you to all of you for coming and participating.